Hello and welcome to part one of a special two-part episode of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Associate Professor Richard McDermott. Richard is an expert in the field of stellar dynamics and stellar populations in galaxies, as well as the deconstruction of galactic history. He's also the lead scientist of the MAVIS project, a major new instrument developed in Australia for the European Southern Observatory. In this episode, I talk to Richard McDermott about the MAVIS project, its capabilities, and what it will mean for the future of astronomical observation. Tell me about this instrument. Sure. Well, um, the instrument is called MAVIS, which is an acronym. It stands for Multi-Conjugate Adaptive Optics visible imager and spectrograph. And so that's a bit of a mouthful. So we just refer to it as MAVIS. Um, and so MAVIS is a, a new instrument that, um, that we're building for the very large telescope, the VLT in Chile, which is owned by the European Southern Observatory, ESO. So uh, in 2017, Australia um, started a 10-year strategic partnership with ESO um, that gives Australian astronomers access to their uh, telescopes in Chile, two sites there, but the, the primary one is the uh, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, which actually is four telescopes, four eight-meter class telescopes, so some of the largest in the world, and they're all equipped with, with really powerful instruments. So this is, um, you know, a, a, a huge win for Australian astronomers to have access to these telescopes. But in addition to that, it also allows Australia to participate in the in the consor- in the collaboration that is ESO, um, and that involves, you know, um, you know, getting contracts for for building things, maintaining things, um, and of particular interest to us is is to develop new instrumentation for for the observatory. So it's really that partnership that opened the door to to, to launch the Mavis project, and at the same time they've just commissioned. Um, a new capability there at the VLT. So they've turned one of their telescopes into what they're calling the adaptive optics facility. So I'll talk about adaptive optics, uh, I guess, later. Um, but basically, you know, they've, they've equipped one of their telescopes such that um, it, can, it can correct for uh, Earth's atmosphere, the distortions caused by Earth's atmosphere. And this, this, this creates an opportunity to actually see what this facility could really do. Um, and so they have already some powerful instruments there, which, um, which have demonstrated that, that this adaptive optics facility actually has, has a lot of potential. And so Mavis is trying to take the next step to really capitalize on, on, on what can be done with this adaptive optics technology. So yeah, and, and to cut long story short, basically Mavis can uh, you know, correct for, for the distortions caused by our atmosphere. And, and it's like having your telescope in space. So people are kind of familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope. That was such um, such a, a powerful tool and still is because um, it doesn't suffer from, from the distortions of Earth's atmosphere. So basically it gives you perfect images, but it's a relatively small telescope. So if we can do the same in terms of delivering, you know, perfect images essentially, but on a large telescope that we can easily build or more easily build down here on the ground, um, that, that will be even you know, more sensitive and give us even sharper images. And so that's what Mavis intends to do. Um, it's pretty challenging. This kind of instrument has not been built before. Um, in particular, it's trying to, to make these corrections, but at, at very uh, blue wavelengths. So the same kind of wavelengths of light that our eyes are sensitive to, it turns out it's actually very difficult to do this adaptive optics um, at these kinds of wavelengths. But that 
that wavelength range is, is really powerful. It's very rich in information for astronomers. There's lots of absorption and emission features there from stars and from gas. So it's a very rich information source, but it's just hard to do this, this adaptive optics there. So yeah, it's a pretty advanced um, piece of equipment. Um, Australia is leading the project. So we actually have the primary expertise in, in this kind of um, adaptive optics technology and also the experience to, to build um, imaging and spectrographs, um, which are the, the tools that we, that we use. Um, it's a consortium where Australia is about 50% of the consortium. There's a major um, aspect of it in Italy. So the, the ENAF, it's the National Institute for Astrophysics there, is the other major partner. And also the uh, laboratory uh, for astrophysics in Marseille is the, is the third partner in the consortium. So it's a very international uh, group to work in. It's a complex project. And so that plus COVID-19 has made it uh, an interesting period to be trying to do this kind of thing. Um, but actually the, the project's progressing really well. So what type of objects is uh, Mavis going to be observing? Yeah, well, the, the great thing about Mavis is um, we're really aiming it to be a general purpose tool. So, you know, adaptive optics is, is a relatively established technique at, at longer wavelengths where, where it's a bit easier. But even then, it tends to be um, a little bit niche because you need to have reference sources nearby the thing you want to look at. You need to have a relatively bright star so that you can measure what the atmosphere is doing in real time. And so one of the, the great things about Mavis is that it, um, it is opening up the sky to this technology. And it's doing that using multiple lasers. So we're going to have eight laser beacons shining up into the sky. Um, and that illuminates a, a part of the atmosphere about 90 kilometers above us and creates kind of what we call uh, laser guide stars. They're not really stars. They're just bright point sources that we can use to measure what the atmosphere is doing. And uh, because of the technique of adaptive optics that, that's being used, it's called multi-conjugate adaptive optics. But that's basically a, a fancy way of, of saying that we can correct a bigger patch of the sky so we can make that corrected image over a larger area. And the combination of those things means that we can point um, over you know, a large fraction of the sky. And so we can use this really for, for looking at uh, essentially anything. Um, and so it has a very broad science case, science application. And we're, you know, we're going to be looking at um, regions around stars in our own galaxy, um, out to resolving individual stars in other galaxies, and then looking back you know, to the highest highest redshift earliest times to look at uh, the first star clusters information in the universe. So a very broad range of science applications. I also read that the telescope is going to be doing some spectroscopy. So will the adaptive optics change the way that spectroscopy is done or will it make the spectrograph more accurate? Yeah, so in principle, the, the adaptive optics kind of cleans up the image and then sends that sort of um, corrected light to whatever science instrument that you want to look at it with. So it, it doesn't change it um, fundamentally. It's not, it's not a different technique fundamentally. The kind of spectrograph that, that we're planning to build is called an integral field spectrograph. And that is a special kind of spectrograph that allows you to really capture the full two-dimensional corrected information that, that the adaptive optics is giving us. So you don't just get a point and a spectrum at that point, but you actually get um, you know, an entire 2D array and every position in that, in that two-dimensional image creates its own spectrum. And so you create like a cube of information. 
And so that's that's called integral field spectroscopy, and it's it's really well tuned to to working with this kind of um, adaptive optics corrected imaging. So you know we're really gearing it towards understanding very complex objects, things that you know there's blobs of gas and there's stars and things are moving and there's lots of um, you know complexity there. Uh, Mavis is going to help kind of resolve that complexity, both spectrally, spatially, and every dimension that, that we can think of, really. And so, you know, that that makes it a very powerful um, instrument in that sense for doing spectroscopy. So where in the suite of international telescopes, both on the ground and in space, does Mavis fit in? Right. Well, that's that's one of the, the key aspects, actually, of the instrument. Because of the way that this adaptive optics works and because of the way that telescope optics work. The kind of you know, sharpness of image that we'll get with Mavis is going to be basically the same as the sharpness of image that we'll get on the next generation of giant telescopes, the so-called extremely large telescopes. Astronomers are not terribly inventive when it comes to telescope names. Um, so basically it means that on an eight meter telescope like the VLT, the very large telescope, we can get the same resolution as what we'll get at infrared wavelengths, which is where these extremely large telescopes are really focusing. And so it's highly complementary to what um, these, these next generation telescopes are going to deliver. And in that sense, um, it's actually really critical because these, these big facilities will be amazing. They'll have incredible sensitivity, but they'll really be geared towards far red infrared uh, wavelengths. And so Mavis kind of fills that that capability gap of bluer, bluer wavelengths. So you've mentioned adaptive, op adaptive optics a couple of times now. Uh, just, uh, just give us a bit of an idea of what, what it actually means. Right. Okay. So, you know, when you look at the stars, you're seeing the starlight that has traveled, you know, essentially unperturbed for uh, perhaps millions of years um, across the universe. Um, and it's going really well right up until it hits our atmosphere. And then because of our atmosphere, um, it has a changing path through that atmosphere. And so it's kind of analogous to when you look to the bottom of a swimming pool. You know, if you, if you put an object into a swimming pool and you try and look at it, rather than seeing a nice clear image of that object, um, what you see is that a, a kind of a dancing image of that object. And you can kind of make it out, but it's all kind of moving around. The same thing happens to starlight for very similar reasons. And so, that's a real problem because we build these, you know, incredible uh, large telescopes that can collect a lot of light, and they're actually optically capable of giving us much, much sharper images. Um, but they're actually limited by this by this wobbling effect that the atmosphere creates. The good thing is that we can actually correct that to a large extent, and we do that by um, making the the light um, bounce off of a mirror that has kind of the inverse shape. Um, of the distortion that's imprinted by the atmosphere. And so when we, when, we, when we do that, we can sort of take out the distortion that was created by the atmosphere and create back that kind of perfect um, uh, beam of light from, from that object. So that's what adaptive optics aims to do. Now, it turns out it's not quite as straightforward as, as how I just described it. Um, and in fact, you have to make these corrections, you know, something like a thousand or, or, or more times per second. And so you're, you have to measure and correct, measure and correct. You have to do this a thousand times a second. And it's the measuring of the distortion that is, that is the hard part. We need a source, you know, a reference source, basically, that lets us measure what the atmosphere is doing along that, along that beam. And we have to be able to measure it very quickly. Um, and that, that means it has to be relatively bright. We have to have enough you know, light coming 
so that we can make these measurements. And that's really the, the thing that makes adaptive optics most challenging. And that's why we need these powerful lasers that, that shine up into the sky and illuminate patches um, at about you know, 100 kilometers above us. And we can use those as reference sources, but even then it's, it's quite challenging. And then, you know, Mavis actually doesn't just have one of these kind of deformable mirrors that makes the correction, actually has three. And all three of them have to be controlled at a very high precision, at a very high speeds. So this is computationally quite, quite challenging as well. So there's lots of um, innovations that have had to be made to allow an instrument like Mavis, um, you know, possible. But, uh, you know, it's never been done before, but we're confident that, that we're, we, can, we can pull this off. When uh, will Mavis be up and running, ready to go? So it's, um, it takes quite a while to, to build these instruments. Um, and just to give you a sense of scale, you know, it's not just a small box that we can carry off to, to the mountain in Chile. These instruments are, are pretty big. Um, Mavis will actually fill, you know, um, a sizable volume in, in the telescope dome. You know, it's, uh, it will be as high as a person. It will be, you know, several uh, meters in diameter and so on. So it's a big instrument. Inside is a lot of complex optics that have to be assembled and tested and so on, brought together from these different countries. So overall, the project takes something like uh, six, seven years to, 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 to come to, to fruition. So that means it will be on the telescope, we think, by early 2027. And that will be well-timed for when this next generation of, of giant telescopes will be you know, first casting their eyes to the sky. And so we hope that by the end of the decade, we'll, we'll be able to um, you know, be doing science with the instrument together with these uh, extremely large telescopes and, and making a bunch of discoveries. Where can people find more about this project? So we have a, a, a website. It's a blog, actually. So we're trying to post there uh, regularly about, about the project. And that is www.mavis-ao.org. Um, and you'll find there resources about the project, um, links to science meetings that we've held, um, information about the kinds of science that the instrument can do, as well as updates about you know, how the project is tracking. We're just coming up to a milestone, actually, in the next couple of weeks, where we, uh, we sign the actual agreement that locks, uh, locks the project in with, with the European Southern Observatory and you know, kind of paves the way for the next six years of, of work. Was there anything else about Mavis that I missed or have we pretty much covered it all? <laughs> uh, we certainly covered the technical stuff, yeah. Um, I can talk more about the science that we want to do. You know, one of the exciting things we're, we're looking at at the moment is whether we can detect intermediate mass black holes in star clusters. And so you know, if, you, if you follow the news, you may have heard of gravitational waves and that, that these are you know, showing that there's um, a fairly good population of, um, of, of black holes at tens of solar mass uh, scale. And uh, we think at the center of galaxies, well, we pretty, pretty much know that there are black holes, there are supermassive black holes that are millions to billions uh, of solar masses in their mass. But we have this big gap between these kind of stellar mass or tens of solar mass scale black holes and then these mega monster supermassive black holes at the center of the galaxies, we don't really know what falls in between. And that's a bit of a puzzle because, you know, presumably you make the big ones by, you know, combining smaller things, but we've never seen these intermediate mass black holes. So we're kind of hunting for them. And one of the places that, that we expect to find them is at the center of star clusters. But these are quite difficult measurements to make. And it, the, the most direct way is to, is to see the motions of stars around these very massive compact objects. 
that's analogous to what we've done at the center of the Milky Way that recently got a Nobel Prize, actually. And we looked at the orbits of stars going around the center of our galaxy, and we could infer that from their motions, the only explanation is to have a supermassive black hole of, of around 4 million solar masses at the center of our galaxy. So we want to do that sort of similar experiment, but then in the dense uh, central regions of star clusters, looking for these intermediate mass, so maybe 1,000 or 10,000 solar mass black holes at the central star clusters. And to do that, because of this very sharp imaging that Mavis gives us, we can actually track stars moving on the sky over the course of, let's say, 10 years. We'll actually see the stars change position, um, and that will give us a handle on how they're moving in the star clusters. And those orbits can tell us about you know, how much mass is hidden in the center of these star clusters, hopefully in the form of, of an intermediate mass black hole. So that's one of the sort of more uh, exciting science cases that, that Mavis can really make a breakthrough. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.